0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman.
0: And I'm Mindari Wall.
1: And welcome to The Loop. So this week on the show, we are digging into the municipal election and also a mm-hmm. cat in the city that's got his paws full of responsibility. But first, Min. Yes. I got to tell you something. Okay. I think we... Crushed it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I
0: like <laughs> That
1: was, of course, Premier Jason Kenney announced Wednesday three yes. stages for Alberta's reopening plan. Um, we've seen BC and Ontario put theirs out this week as well. But uh, I think Alberta's is like one of the more optimistic slash aggressive. <laughs> yes. Is the term maybe? Um,
0: opto-aggressive.
1: Opto-aggressive. Agro-opto. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we could be entirely open by the end of June, which, as many people pointed out, is just in time for Stampede.
2: Yeah.
0: It just seems so <laughs> crazy early.
1: Yeah. Uh, here's Kenny speaking on Edmonton AM this week.
2: Well, it's actually slower, again, than than many jurisdictions around the world that have uh, that have had more advanced vaccine programs. Uh, we are taking a careful staged approach here. We do urge people to remember this is not. We continue to have very stringent public health measures in place uh, for the next uh, month. Um, there will be some gradual relaxation as hospital numbers uh, continue. We hope to come down and, and the vaccine numbers continue uh, to go up. But I guess I would say to folks that, that we should be, you know, I know we've been understandably uh, locked in um, the, the the mindset of of COVID uh, trying to limit the spread for the past 15 months using restrictions, but the better way of limiting the spread is through vaccines. They work and and we should um, be, be confident about asserting that given the real world experience we've seen and, and, the, and the, the enormous amount of research that's been done uh, on their, the efficacy of vaccines and the protective effect.
1: So, Min, what did you think about this week's announcement?
0: I mean, I think it was just less than two weeks ago. I, I'm pretty sure I saw uh, Premier Jason Kenny and Dr. Dina Hinshaw trying to convince people that this pandemic was real. That's 14 months after this thing started. Yeah. Yeah. So we were at the point where we were still trying to convince people this thing is real, and now we're talking about okay, we're going to be back to normal by the end of June. Uh, It's there's many questions. It's
1: it's really quick. I think what has also struck me has been the graphics changes. Like I think we've gone through like four or five different slogans in the last like month. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, we did see online too lots of people speaking out, uh, medical experts, professionals saying this feels very quick. And
0: and uh, you know, we at one point had the highest you know numbers in north america yet we may just end up being one of the first jurisdictions to loosen uh, restrictions and get back to normal something the balance doesn't seem to be there you we- know <laughs> i mean i've been talking to people like overseas in, in england who yeah. are telling me they've been locked down way longer than we have and way more restrictions than we have and now they are just starting to get back to normal now yeah but yet we are somehow doing it in a third of a less time
1: we flip-flop Quite a bit. And I mean, obviously the markers are better. Uh, you know, our, yeah. our value is down. I think it's like 0.68 or something as right. of this week. But, but it is really quick. We do go from being the worst in the country to being the most open in the country.
0: And I mean, if this is all about the stampede, yeah, I get it. It's the greatest show on earth. Mm-hmm. But man, like, you know, what if that compromises things, right? I mean, unless everybody's getting vaccinated, everybody and their dog has got a shot. Then yeah, I guess pull out the lamely's western wear and the big belt buckles and the and your hats and let's get it on. Yeah, but let's let's not rush to kind of you know two steps forward, ten steps back.
1: Exactly. We're, we are pushing forward. The hope is that by the end of June, it's like a seventy percent vaccination rate that triggers stage three. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think everyone's kind of hyping up this like one dose summer idea and the yeah. idea of some semblance of normal. But it is worth to note too that there has been some semblance of reopening already, right? Like yeah. uh, kids are are back in in school this week, yes. Man, I know it's Thursday. Your kids actually just went back for the first time today, today right? Yeah,
0: they were all squeaky clean. Uh, they've been you know online uh, for the last couple of weeks and uh, learning in their uh, let's just say you know, uh, leisure wear <laughs> in their night suits, a lot of sweats. Yeah, that's that's the that's the England in me night suits. I night call them night suits. That but makes it sound way more like, yeah, former, <laughs> exactly. Almost. PJs, but uh, no, they were all uh, ready to go up. For the first time, uh, half an hour before the bell go- went off, so nice. I was very impressed by that. So
1: there's excitement. So they're to get eager. Back?
0: Yeah, I think they're excited. I mean, it's it's a little bit of normal for them, right? I Two could I up. could imagine being a kid. Yes. Let alone an adult in the last 14 months and having to you know try to be normal.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, it school is it's a sign, right? Absolutely. It's all everything's coming up men. Yeah, <laughs> you know? everything's coming up roses, right? <laughs> yeah, and of course schools are back in the headlines for a couple of reasons right now. Not mm-hmm. just the fact that they've returned, but also the controversy that we're facing over the draft curriculum. So, Absolutely. As we remember in March, uh, Education Minister Adriana Lagrange released proposed drafts of a new curriculum for K-6 to in every subject. And these proposals have faced a lot of criticism in the months since, including how they treat First Nations, Inuit, and Métis history and contributions. Mm-hmm. And now those criticisms are being aimed at the UCP for the way they used individuals to gain endorsement for the Indigenous part of the curriculum, particularly Chief Billy-Joe Laboucan. And CBC reporter Janet French has been digging into this, and she joins us on The Loop. Hey, Janet. Hello. So what is Chief Billy Joe Lebican's involvement with the curriculum panel?
3: Yeah, so on March 29th, when uh, the education minister unveiled the sort of long-awaited drafts of the kindergarten through grade six proposed curriculum governments always have when they do these announcements what's called validators people that they've lined up they've given them a little bit of information beforehand and they're asking them to stand up and endorse whatever policy or there is they're introducing we knew that there were already concerns about the indigenous content lack of indigenous content and the way indigenous content had been presented in these drafts and so i was also surprised to see at the announcement of fairly well-respected First Nation leader, step up to the lectern alongside the minister to endorse the First Nation's content within the draft. Chief Billy Joe who he's been designated the Grand Chief of Education for Treaty H in Northern Alberta. He's also the chief of Lubicon Lake Band. He just spoke very, very briefly that day saying he's reviewed the K-6 to drafts and looks good. I, I like the direction we're going in. I like what I see here. I was really curious what it was that he liked and why he had a different view from some other First Nations people. And so I called him up. Uh, by the time I got a hold of him in sort of mid to late April, he told me he changed his mind hmm. that he'd been asked to speak at this announcement, that he'd been asked for his advice, that he had seen only a short summary, like a page and a half of how the social studies curriculum would talk about Indigenous history. And that Summary looked good to him. But later, when he actually looked at the hundreds of pages of documents going through kindergarten to grade six, it completely changed his perspective. He felt like the representation was incomplete. I asked him, well, how do you feel about being called up to speak to this? And he just said, like, I feel used. He's used the phrase, I feel like the token Indian and betrayed.
1: So the idea of a new curriculum has been tackled by successive governing parties in the last 10 years. This isn't a new idea to bring forward, but how do these drafts cover Indigenous history and how does that fail in Chief Laboukan's eyes?
3: It's been a bit of a twisted path. This all stems from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There were many, many, many calls to action, including some very specific ones directed to the education sector. And one of them specifically says that children in every grade, kindergarten through grade 12, should be learning about the deleterious effects of residential schools, how treaties came to be, and also positive contributions to society of Indigenous people. This draft proposes treaty education lessons start in grade four And residential schools in grade five. Now, the NDP curriculum proposal that the government changed, they wanted those lessons in K through 12. And one of the advisors that the United Conservative Party government hired said, Well, I think it's too soon. It's too traumatic for small children to learn about that. It was interesting because right now, almost every school participates in something called Orange Shirt Day, where Children in all grades would have conversations about residential schools that are age appropriate. And so Chief Laboucan says the proposal that the UCP has is less progressive than the NDP's draft curriculum, but also less inclusive than the curriculum that is currently in use in classrooms. So he and a Grand Chief of Treaty 8 wrote a letter to Jason Kenney, you know, in which they say that there is a glaring absence of First Nations people in both the writing process and in the resulting documents, and that they find it deeply offensive.
1: The Alberta government did ask a group of elders for feedback, right? What happened there?
3: Yes. So last summer, the government had contracted, kind of handpicked a couple of advisors, I think it was maybe eight or nine, who were supposed to be subject experts in certain subjects. And they had a couple of Black advisors as well. But there were no First Nations advisors and there were no women. And so there was a bit of blowback against that. They then contracted this group of four elders and an anthropologist who studied First Nations history. They were asked to review this material from their perspective. Now, the elders are are literally elders. They're senior citizens. (laughs) Uh, So Betty Latender was one of them. She's a Métis residential school survivor who's worked in Edmonton schools for a long time and has really deep connections with schools. I had a, a great conversation with her where she really painted a picture for me about what the process was like. And she said they sort of handed them like hundreds of pages of documents and gave them sometimes one day, sometimes like four days, to write out feedback. And, you know, it was things like, she, she's like in her 70s, she's like, I don't type that fast, right? <laughs> yeah. So she fully felt it was an inadequate consultation process, that it was kind of ticking a box rather than trying to elicit meaningful feedback. She found the process fairly insulting in retrospect, that they took advantage of her identity and her position. And she said, we're not tokens. She said that the whole process, trying to pay her for her endorsement was like a slap in the face. Now, this came up in question period a couple of times in the legislature. Minister Adriana Lagrange said, oh, you know, all of her feedback was included. And Latender disputes this and says, like, well, I couldn't even give all my feedback cause I didn't have adequate time. It's, she still thinks that Indigenous people and their history seem like an afterthought.
1: How is the government responding to what's being said here?
3: It's very uh, template. They were sort of validators. They also had some validators who they had written quotes from, and they have one from from Wilton Littlechild, who's a former Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner who is from Maskechee's. In this quote, he's lauding the Alberta government for being the first province to promise mandatory treaty and residential school education and the curriculum, but that that was actually done during the progressive conservative years a long time ago. He says, I am honored to be a validator of the new education curriculum and look forward to its transforming and positive change. So the government will share this quote or just read this quote aloud in response to some of the the criticism by Indigenous people. I spent quite a long time trying to get a hold of Wilton Littlechild, and we ended up having almost all communication by text message. That was the only way he would respond to me. And I said, can you explain to me what you like about this? He just said that actually he was asked to speak from his perspective as a residential school survivor and as a TRC commissioner, and that he actually had not seen the drafts when he wrote this quote. Um, and that he wouldn't actually comment on this curriculum, didn't want to comment on it because he hadn't read through them. And he's like, you know, when I've had a chance to really look through this material, then maybe I could give a more informed comment. So I was confused because I'm like, well, they're, they're using your quote in response to this. So there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. There's been criticism from, from some Métis organizations, including the Métis Nation of Alberta, mm-hmm. criticism in a similar vein from First Nations people. In response to that, the minister will say, oh, well, we consulted with the Rupert's Land Institute, which is sort of like an educational affiliate of the Métis Nation of Alberta. They produce resources and help prepare teachers to teach about Métis culture and history. So I talked to uh, one of the directors at that institute, uh, Lisa Krupshank, and she was very much like, we are trying to work with the government to improve this. She's still kind of trying to be optimistic that they can make it better. Uh, But she says there are serious, serious shortcomings in it um, and that consultation, the minister's version of consultation and their version of what they think meaningful consultation was are not the same. What
1: happens now for First Nations, Métis, Inuit bodies and folks in Alberta? What are they asking the government for in response to this?
3: Yeah, a couple things. So, and the letters are still coming. (laughs) I think it was the day before this story ran, another one just happened to show up in my inbox, which was from some of the the First Nations way up north and uh, Chief Alan Adam was another person calling for them to stop this curriculum and just consult meaningfully. I think one of the concerns is that uh, they're not necessarily talking to people who some of these community leaders feel are representative of the best people to consult. So consulting somebody who happens to have an Indigenous identity is not the same thing as consulting somebody with the best expertise or the uh, appropriate leadership that Mm. speaks for other people. One of the people that expressed that concern was Treaty 6 Grand Chief Vernon Watchmaker. There's concern that First Nations children will not see themselves accurately reflected or included in this material. But furthermore, that uh, non-First Nations children won't have an adequate understanding of the history and the complexities of how we got here. That's worrying to him in terms of in perpetuating racism, right? In in potentially perpetuating misunderstandings or misinformation. Sort of understanding the history behind where that misinformation comes from and what how the more the more nuanced version of reality that that mm-hmm. you know if children understand that you know for example they might have a more um, compassionate attitude toward their Indigenous friends. Yeah, the
1: more you know, the better, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. On reserve, like, obviously, there's a sovereign. They can teach whatever they want. If there's some like Treaty 8, for example, is working on their own social studies curriculum, they were doing that already. But then what about First Nations children who live on reserve but go to a provincial school, go to school off reserve? They're getting this curriculum that these First Nations leaders feel is inappropriate. And what about non-First Nations students how will they cultivate an understanding that they think is appropriate to live together a little bit more more harmony, I suppose. Uh,
1: there's a lot at stake here. Has the government engaged with Indigenous communities on this? Have we seen that yet?
3: To some extent, yes. The government says that they do have more meetings scheduled with other First Nations individuals and groups. They didn't name them, so I'm not quite sure who they're referring to LaGrange's office throughout this, like I've, <laughs> I would love to talk to her about it. Um, <laughs> we, we sent several emails. Uh, I detailed in an email uh, each person I talked to sp- all their specific concerns and got some very short written statements back about they're seeking feedback. It's just a draft. We're still working on it. We welcome all feedback. We're talking to different organizations. It's very vague And there's also no commitment from government to actually incorporate any of the feedback, whether it be from First Nations people or uh, Métis groups or we haven't talked about Inuit at all, but also like just parents or educators in general who have really lost confidence in what's in this curriculum.
1: Edmonton is months away from a municipal election, and you can really tell. Signs are starting to go up. There have been more than a couple of announcements from big names. But there are also many fresh faces running for spots on city council. And in a pandemic, the door-knocking strategy that so many candidates rely on isn't really all that possible. CBC's Julia Lipscomb dug into the challenges first-time candidates are facing, and she joins me on the loop. Hey, Julia. Hi, Claire. So I got to know, I mean, do you get nerdy about municipal politics or
4: I, I don't think I get nerdy about <laughs> them, but I am very interested in municipal politics because they are probably the least followed politics yeah. but the most the ones that are have the most impact on our everyday lives. And what I found interesting about this race is that something we've been talking about for years in Edmonton is there's such a lack of diversity and a lack of gender diversity on the current existing city council that I've just been really happy to see a very diverse um, slate of candidates throwing their hats into the ring.
1: And and for all of the candidates that are running... What are the rules for campaigning right now in a pandemic?
4: Well, I asked AHS this question and Tom McMillan from AHS told me that they're working on specific guidelines. But for now, basically, the candidates have the same rules as or as you or I would have, which is that you can't be in people's houses. You're not gathering in groups. Right. Right. So technically they can door knock, but I think a lot of people have made the conscious decision not to door knock during this period because people aren't super comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's just kind of the safe way to go. But for the
1: first time candidates, that's who you wanted to speak to for this. Yes. Why? What what's happening with them right now?
4: It is notoriously difficult for first time candidates to unseat incumbents. Right. And I don't have the numbers on exactly which incumbents are running and which aren't, but um, a lot of sitting councillors are running again, and it is so hard to become known as an unknown. Right. And that is why you see people announcing that they're running for city council like a year in advance. I actually remember seeing Adrian Bruff door knocking in my neighborhood like last summer or even in the fall. Really? Mm-hmm. And it's because it's not, I don't think it's because people want to do these like two year long American style <laughs> campaigns. They just really love it. <laughs> I think it's because they really, really need people to see their face and, and get name recognition and meet their neighbors. And anecdotally, one thing a couple people told me about Amarjeet Sohi and why he could wait, he, he had the luxury of time of yeah. waiting until recently to announce, is because he didn't need a quote runway because he's already such a known entity. So, for these first time, you know, people running for city council, they really really need that yeah. um long runway and I just felt for them because some of them are have announced months ago and they haven't really had the traditional normal ways that they could interact with uh, constituents. So what
1: did they tell you about what is getting in the way and how they're getting around some of these challenges?
4: Yeah, so I I spoke to a handful of candidates. One of them was Gabrielle Batiste, who's running in Ward O'Dayman. And she talked about how in her ward, there's a lot of condos, there's a lot of apartment buildings, and how they'd get around that. Usually, is set up a meeting inside one of those buildings um, so that people can get to know them. But she hasn't been able to do that. So she talked about becoming a pseudo-journalist and having to kind of do her own video series that she released online. And then she talked a lot about working her network. And she is a lawyer, and she's been a lawyer for 25 years, And it seems like she's got a pretty solid network of folks. And she also works with um, part of her job is consulting city councillors. So she kind of knows the game. And I think she has a lot of contacts and just getting the word out and getting people to talk to other people. That's that was part of her strategy. Yeah. You start with who you know first. And exactly. I guess that's kind of the one end of the spectrum. But there's
1: also a lot of kind of really young candidates running this year. Right. What did they tell you?
4: Um, yeah, so I spoke to Yanni Girona. She's 24 and she's running in Um She's got an online presence. She plans to do flyer drops. Um, she acknowledges the importance of meeting folks in person. She kind of floated the idea of maybe, you know, setting up a table outside and people right. could set up times to come and talk to her. Yeah. Other candidates are, you know, booking calls. Harun Ali is the youngest candidate, uh, I think, that I've ever heard of, actually. He announced before he turned 18, and he's what? just turned 18. Oh, my gosh. Um, he's running in Papasteo, and he told me that he's hosted nine online events already. Nine. So Yeah, nine. So, like, discussions, roundtables, that kind of thing. Wow. Um And that he's been dropping in on community league AGMs. I assume that's all virtual. So, just a different kind of campaigning. And I also yeah. think, you know... This new virtual campaign world does probably favor people like Haroon, who grew up extremely comfortable on the Internet. Yes, 100 percent. The digital natives term yes, that we heard. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. And he really believes that safety and comfort for people and his neighbors is much more important than campaigning in person. Um, but he will get out when he can.
5: One disadvantage is that, unfortunately, I'm a people's person. I'm not able to talk to people in person, which kind of sucks because <laughs> I'm someone that loves having conversations. But hopefully when it's safe to do so, I'll be, I'm, I'm pumped to be out in the community, talking to voters. Hopefully this summer, if Jason Penny's best summer comes free. <laughs>
1: I mean, the best summer, we've heard, it's on its way. It's Um, on its way. (laughs) Stampede, baby. But I love how, like, even in a pandemic, right, there's so much energy there. There's so much enthusiasm from candidates like Haroon. And creativity, too. I'm sure we talked about the kind of digital um, expansion of events and stuff. But are they finding more out-of-the-box kind of ways to get attention?
4: Yes, and I think they're just really open to anything at this point. Right. Um, Giselle General, she's running in Ward CP Winowoc uh, against incumbent Sarah Hamilton, who's quite a high-profile um, counselor. She works for a not-for-profit, helping low-income people who can't afford legal advice. She has a full-time job, relies on public transit, so she actually told me, like, door-knocking... Obviously, she was going to do it, but it was already a challenge. Yeah. Um, so if she can find creative ways to kind of replace some of that door knocking, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um so she's doing dropping off flyers, hosting virtual events, meet and greets. She had her first meet and greet last week where she kind of introduced herself. I believe that was via Facebook Live, but she also recognizes that not everyone is online and she's pretty open to whatever.
5: Someone even recommended the vehicle parade, which I thought is interesting again worth worth, worth exploring when it comes to a uh, feasibility. Um I'm I'm a pretty uh like confident person in that regard, so if for some reason, my campaign manager or my campaign communications team decides that, you know, I should, you know, be in a uh, street corner dancing with my lawn sign, and then we'll post that video on TikTok. Like, I'll be okay with that, you know? I think it's I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> but uh, regardless of the uh, techniques and even gimmicks, that's really the right word we're looking for here, um, I'm more than happy to be as creative as possible because it is very important for me to reach out to as many everyday Edmontonians as possible, no matter where they are.
4: And Claire, I have not checked to see if she has a TikTok account. No,
1: but I think we need to find out.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would love to see that TikTok come to
1: fruition. I, Personally, this is the thing. Like, I think the word "gimmick" comes with certain connotations, but I actually really love the idea of just using these tools, getting out there in a different way. Exactly. Even if that is just dancing on a street corner, like I totally, uh, I totally ship that. I would remember that for sure. And and yeah, and, and online is it's such a big space, right? And it's actually not always the best way to get eyes on you, even though I think we were relying it so much, especially in the pandemic. But you did reach out to a political strategist for the story. What did they tell you about what they think these first-time candidates may have to actually do to get the right kind of attention?
4: Yeah, so they they acknowledge that it would be an extraordinarily difficult year yeah. and that it's always hard to, to get recognition and it's going to be even tougher this year. Uh, and Adrienne King, she's a political strategist at StratCom. She said there is no replacement for door knocking. Even if you're calling people, you might not have everyone's phone number. You just can't reach anyone. There's really right. no better way to get in touch with your constituents than to pound the pavement. But when we hit 75% vaccination, or actually 70% vaccination, it sounds like, hopefully they'll be able to get out there, um, you know, meet folks face-to-face and hear their concerns. So in the meantime, COVID remains in the way. But COVID remains in the way, but I guess... If we do open up end of June, early July, that gives us, that gives candidates three and a half months. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully that levels the playing field a little bit.
1: Min, uh, I got a question for you. Yes. How do you feel about cats?
0: Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't want to offend anybody, but. Just be um, honest, it's a safe space. Cats are, you know, my good buddy, Andy Shaw, grew up in Millwoods. They had several cats, and um, I always felt a little nervous when I would go over to the Shaw household. Okay, because I didn't know because you were being watched. Because I felt the cats were judging me, (laughs) like who is this guy? What's he? What is? What are his real motives here? Stranger
1: in our home. Yeah,
0: they would kind of like walk by me and give me that stink eye, and I'd be like, kind of like, oh hi, Hi, like (laughs) that, like just try to be nice. Like you know, I'm I'm here as a guest. I'm I I, you know, hey, people love their pets, their cats, their dogs. I could see what the allure is. Right, I, I get it. Yeah, but uh, I just never grew guy. up with pets. Yeah, I just never, never had any. I I knew how to be nice to people's pets, but I just uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want any. It's to each their own, right? You a- just nailed it.
1: And I think the thing about cats that a lot of people struggle with is that they have very strong personalities.
0: To me, they have that. There's that ability that they may snap at any point. <laughs> like you may do something that will freak them out, and then they'll just like. <laughs> And they'll just, you'll see their teeth or their fangs. Either, I, I, what are they called? <laughs> fangs? No. Teeth? Teeth or fangs. Oh, I guess teeth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think it's clear that we're both coming Claws. from a little Claws. bit of trauma with cats here. But yeah. I think it is worth to note that there are some good cats in the world.
0: Absolutely. I'm um, not painting the entire cat population with the same brush. <laughs> I would never do that.
1: I am hoping that I find one of the good ones one day. Um, and Sounds I, like we have. I do. I have a story about an older cat who I think is a very good cat. He also has a very good name. His name is Garth. Cool name. Great name for a cat. He's 13 year old. He's a tomcat who is hanging out in the rough and tumble streets of Edmonton. Hmm. And, And Min Garth became a grandfather to hundreds in like one fell swoop. Wow! Uh, yes, he was taken in by so not Forget biologically. Not. But no, I think it's more of a symbolic gesture. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Which I would argue makes him an even better cat. Cool. Um, of course, all of this after he was taken in by Forget Me Not Animal Rescue here in the oh, city.
0: I see what you did there. Yes. So or Christi- they did there.
1: <laughs> Christine Colton is the founder of Forget Me Not Animal Rescue here in Edmonton, and here she is with the story of sweet, sweet Grandpa Garth.
5: One of our volunteer families had actually notified us of a cat that looked to be in really rough shape that had been in their housing complex for a few years. Um, They had tried on multiple occasions to catch him, but he wasn't interested in being trapped um, and was still hopping fences and was pretty agile up to a point. And then uh, winter of 2020, he started to really slow down. Um, He had some really visible injuries on him. He had a really significant limp. And Easter weekend, he just decided that he was ready for help and showed up on their doorstep. Um, so they took him in and we brought him to uh, Edmonton Animal Care and Control, you know, being a senior cat, having really severe dental issues, wounds on his head and limp, and, lymph, and uh, we think he probably was hit by a car at some point because he having a hard time walking. We suspected he would unfortunately be sort of prime candidate for euthanasia, but... Animal control really wanted to fight for him and to give him a chance if we would commit to finding a foster placement for him and getting his teeth fixed when he got out of there. So we worked together and uh, then Garth came into our care and he never left. (laughs) Um, He was with me for two days to recover from his dental surgery and the plan was for him to move on to a foster home. And uh, it was the second day after his surgery that I let him out of his recovery room for a little bit and we just got charged by kittens and uh, as soon as the kitten got close to him, he started to purr. And that was the first time I'd ever heard this old tomcat who was so beaten up purring. Uh, And that was kind of the moment where Garth became Grandpa Garth. He's just such a special soul. He really gravitates towards the ones that are orphaned the youngest, or are really frail or in really poor condition. It's like he knows that they need his comfort. He'll pick them up and carry them around the house. He's an expert kitten bather. Um, We're surprised that uh, he still has a tongue attached to his body because he just spends his entire day cleaning kittens' faces for them after they eat. Um, He's cuddled with up to 10 or 12 kittens at a time, jammed into his little bed, um, and he doesn't have an inch of space to move, and he just loves it. He just purrs like crazy. He's totally in his element that way. He gets really mad at me whenever one of his really super special kittens goes home. He usually sulks for a few days until I bring him somebody new to take care of. I think if we had been anywhere outside of Edmonton, if we had gone to any other municipal facility, he 100% would have been euthanized. The world would have missed out on knowing who Grandpa Garth is. So we're very lucky to have the programs that we do in Edmonton with the spay-neuter program at ACC and their partnership with local rescues, that when cats like this do come in and they see that there's something special to them um, and that they still have a lot of love left to give, that we have that opportunity to work together and make that happen. It's been really challenging over the last year and a half with you know, everything that everybody's going through with COVID. uh, We're at an all-time low for donations, because a lot of folks are barely managing themselves. They don't have anything extra to give. Um, Our fundraising events have had to be cancelled. Our adoption in-person events have had to be cancelled. Definitely an increased demand on the rescues, with a lot of folks unable to pay for vet care for their own pets reaching out to us to kind of fill that gap. Um, Also, with such a mild winter, we've just had an explosion of kittens again. We've got 65,000 feral cats in the city, um, and most of them are not spayed or neutered. We definitely had a lot of adoptions. Um, The problem is there's also been a complete shutdown of the subsidized and free spay neuter programs usually offered within the city. So there's more kittens. Um, So while we have had more go home, there's even more coming in. You know, I think there's two really important messages with Garth, you know, it's very obvious with his compassion, his love, that at some point he did belong to someone um, and he was just left behind for whatever reason. I would say to anybody who finds themselves in a situation where you can no longer take care of your animal, please reach out to rescues. And, you know, secondly, he is a senior boy. Very often senior pets are the ones who are overlooked at shelters, but they are so special and they come with such special personalities and special stories. So. I would really encourage everybody the next time
1: you're looking to adopt a senior senior pet. Okay, man, are you ready for this? Uh. Grandpa Garth has cared for four to five hundred kittens so far. So has he changed your mind about cats?
0: You have got to be kidding me. (laughs) Oh! Four to five hundred.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of kittens.
0: Sounds like this Garth guy's got an amazing personality. (laughs) Personality? Personality. There's more where where that's (laughs) coming from, if you want like, talk about a feline good story of the week like that. I think you nailed it here with this one.
1: The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team is Min Daryawal.
2: You're crushing it.
1: Leslie Goldstone.
2: You're crushing it.
1: Corey Haberstock.
2: You're crushing it.
1: Christina Silva.
2: You're crushing it.
1: James Evans.
2: You're crushing it. I like that.
1: Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnieman.
2: You're crushing
1: it. <laughs> thank you so much for listening and thank you to Corey for the check-up this week, especially. He is really crushing it. Yes. There's always so much more to know. So you can get into the loop with us every Friday.
0: Absolutely. If you want to get in touch, leave us a rating or review wherever you are listening. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And if you want to get in touch, we have an email. Theloop at cbc.ca.
1: And, of course, you can use the hashtag TheLoopCBC on social media or find us. I'm at Nami Knob. And I'm at Min Dariwal. Easy peasy. And subscribe and download the show on the CBC Listen app or wherever you
2: get your podcasts. You're crushing it. (laughs) For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.